Hello folks, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you back to the brand new Series 5 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Still the number one North Wales spare room based one person true crime show and on to series number five by now. That's insane. Where on earth has all of that lot gone? The chalkboard's been filled back up. I'm refreshed. I'm hopefully match fit, shall we say? And it's so good to be back with you folks. It really is. I've missed this and I've missed you lot during the show's break. Of course, I'm still Paul, the creator and voice of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. You guys are the wonderful enthusiasts that are making Series 5 of the show happen and it's fantastic as ever having you joining me where I hope the episode finds you all good and well. So I'm fresh off my series break now and back with another series of tales looking at some of the usually more obscure, unfamiliar crimes, both solved and unsolved ones, from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I've not changed any of the formats of the show during the break I've not had a bump on the head and decided to do it in a bloody whisper or Morse code or anything crazy like that. If it's not broken, then you don't fix it, dear. I might tweak it slightly over the series, like maybe I'll have some new theme music, which you might have noticed. But the rest of it, it's like having a fag after a big meal or putting on an old shoe, really. There's still me talking shite at the start, coming out with stuff like an absolute shamble of bollocks. We'll probably mention Ken Barlow at some point, Crime Watch, Slate the BBC off, yada yada yada. I'm sure you know what I mean, absolute business as usual. There'll still be the traditional listener written episode this series, a multi-part episode arc, or possibly arcs, you never know the start and the end tracks that I listen to while I'm writing the episode as part of the episode notes. And overall, I'll still try as ever to bring you guys some of the unfamiliar cases that come from the chalkboard or my library shelves. The offer is still out there as ever for any of you guys who have a case in mind that you think would be a good fit for a show episode to get in touch. If it's one that you want to research and write up yourselves, fantastic. Perhaps it's one that's local to you or one that's always intrigued you. Maybe it's even one that touches you personally. I've had that suggested before. Now, by all means, please get in touch through any of the show's social media and I'll get straight back to you about it. Now, there's still been the monthly Patreon episodes for supporters out in the break as well. With this month's bonus episode number 26 coming in just a few weeks. To get to hear the back catalogue of these for yourselves then it's so easy you don't have to buy it dinner first even, and it's very cheap and cheerful to do. You just head on over to the Patreon site and look up the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, always with the podcast suffix, and just go from there. Or, I've saved you all of that bother, and there's the ever-present link in the episode show notes. Within moments, you'll have access to episodes such as Horrors of the Holidays, the Tinkersdale Woods Murder, the Beauty in the Bikini, or the latest one, Maths, Misunderstandings and Murder, just like both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. Now massive shout outs and thanks from the closed series go out to, and you have to bear with me here because there's quite a few of these guys, new supporters Andrew Bright, Kathy Woods, Brenda, Margot Delaney, Sari Kaipernan, Bridget Curtin, Laurie King, Vicky London, Ricky Temple, Sam Dutton, Adele Moll, Julie James, Brian Colgate, Dean Sanders, Troy Lawrence, Lizzie Smith, Sarah Kempster, Ben, Arthur Forksake, 
Dean, JJ, Rachel, Charlotte Light, Trudy Brammel, Julia Baker, Chris Carey, Andy Silly, Claire Heal, Shashi Byrne, Christine Phillips, Shanda Shepherd, Samantha Bressington, Trevor Hibbert, Olivia Wallace, Phil Snowden, Rachel Smart, Becky Griffiths, Lisa Davis, Jane Garees, Ryan Hart, and Jody Doyon. That's absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for your support all, and I hope that you found the bonus Patreon content interesting. Stay tuned for bonus episode number 26, which as I've said, will be coming very shortly. So before we get to the opening case that I've selected to begin series 5 with, I do have a short word from this week's sponsor of the show, who once again I'm pleased to say, Beer 52. Now like me, do you enjoy a beer? And are you one in the supermarket or the pub who looks and thinks, yeah, I like the sound of that, sounds different and I'm a bit intrigued. You like that? Then doesn't free beer sound even better, eh? Well, friends of the show, Beer 52, have very kindly offered you guys just that. Imagine eight unique, carefully chosen craft beers that are sourced from all around the globe, a snack to go with a sesh that you'll have there, and even a copy of award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, which explains about the chosen theme and the individual beers that you'll get as part of this. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener to the show, how would you like 10 beers instead of 8? And all for just postage costs of £4.95. Just head over to www.beer52.com That's beer52.com forward slash true crime for this fantastic offer. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case of different themed, carefully selected beers that they've searched the best small batch breweries across the globe to find, which has unsurprisingly made them the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Past themes from them have ranged worldwide from Korean beers to Californian, right through themes such as South African and German on the way, but never forgetting their roots, as an independent UK company, Beer 52 also passionately support the UK craft beer scene. I was kindly sent a mixed and intriguing box from them that me and a friend of mine enjoyed, and from the patriotic Return of the Empire to the You Have to Taste It to Believe It, Hazelnut Chocolate Vanilla Porter I Can't Believe It's Not Ella, there's something for everyone to discover. If you have a look on the show's Instagram page, you'll be able to see the selection that I was sent. And what's especially good about Beer 52 is that you can tailor your box to suit your own tastes. For example, you might only want light beers for your theme, or you may hate these and you just want dark. You're in control and you're not held to ransom. If you think that Beer 52 isn't your thing, then you can leave at any time it's as simple as the contestants on Love Island. So if you think this sounds great, then for your free case of beer, and as a listener to the True Crime Enthusiast, your two extra beers to go with it, a snack to have with this, and Ferment Magazine to leave through, just head to www.beer52.com, that's beer52.com, forward slash true crime, to get your case free for just the postage costs of £4.95 to cover. Now there is a link to the offer from Beer52 to be found with the show notes this week guys, so if you head there and have a look. And with that, 
let's get on to series five again it's fabulous to be back with you guys i miss you and i miss doing the show on these breaks now when i finished series four it was slightly shorter than the other ones and i did claim back then that the opener of series five would have been what i'd intended to finish that series with well i've thought differently about it i've decided i'm actually saving that one for a few weeks time it will end up being this series' first multi-episode arc, as there's quite a bit to it. So I've come up with a different tale to open the series, and as when I wrote it, it ended up incredibly long, I've chosen to split it into two parts. It was much more workable to do it like this, but I've chosen to release them on the same day. For the opener of series 5, we're heading back up to Scotland, as it isn't somewhere we've visited too often on The Enthusiast, to its beautiful capital city of Edinburgh for a true case of tragedy and horror. It's a fairly recent case this one, only going back as far as 2013, and one that when I researched it, I really shook my head at for several points. I'm sure that you'll see why as the episodes progress. The episode following the opening account of the series will also run very nicely off it, as I'm sure you'll see. Now I'm honest as ever here on the show and there are descriptions of some events and correspondence contained within the episodes that are disturbing and offensive. I've not sanitised these as ever it's all or nothing here because I want you to understand the type of person that we're dealing with with this case. The episodes this week contain descriptions of crimes and events including references that include the use of racial slurs and language that some listeners may find disturbing or offensive, so please use your discretion whilst listening, guys. With that in mind, it's a welcome to Series 5 of the show, and please join the true crime enthusiast for a case I've entitled The Body on Corstaphine Hill. So the opening tale of the series begins back in June 2013, and we're up in Scotland's capital city, Edinburgh, and to one of Edinburgh's seven hills, a wooded ridge and nature reserve named Corstaphine Hill. The high area overlooks in part Edinburgh Zoo to its south, and Edinburgh's Murrayfield Stadium, the home of Scottish Rugby Union, to its southeast. Now it's a very popular and picturesque area all year round, and can often be found teeming with dog walkers, nature enthusiasts, and fitness fanatics. One such of these was a 24-year-old professional ski instructor and outgoing soul named Aaron McLean Foreman. And on the afternoon of Thursday the 6th of June, Aaron found himself in Edinburgh City Centre, where he'd been to make arrangements for a career-furthering trip to New Zealand that he'd been planning. Leaving the city centre to head to his home in the East Craigs area of the city, to the west of Corstaphine Hill, Aaron had borrowed his father's cycle and as... And it's always perhaps a bit unfairly for Scotland, but the weather was so nice, had opted to preserve a pleasant journey by adding an extra detour onto his route home and making his way through the Corstaphine Hill Nature Reserve area. As he was later to describe, the day was as good as it gets in Scotland, and as he pushed the cycle up the hill, late that afternoon Aaron decided to stop for a bit of a breather to take in the fine weather. The point where he decided to stop was covered with dense undergrowth, nettles and brambles, but a short distance ahead he noticed a clearing free from these where he could sit and sunbathe. Heading into this clearing, 
Aaron did notice an abundance of flies in the area, but gave these no more of a second thought, until he prepared himself to sit down and noticed the root cause of the flies. Gazing up at him was a very intact, unmistakable skull. Now being a regular outdoors type, Aaron had come across several animal bones and remains upon his rambles many times before, and at first glance his impression was that this was a sheep's or deer's skull that he was looking at. But the more he looked and the more that he took in the scene, it appeared that this was wishful thinking on his part. Because sheep or deer don't have perfect white veneers, do they? And they don't bury one another in a shallow grave. The more Aaron looked at the scene, the more the realisation of what he'd found hit him. He was later to tell of what looked like several other bones scattered around the area, marks around the site that appeared to have been caused with a shovel, and of course, those very perfect, very white teeth. Aaron had discovered a shallow grave. Going into what he was later to describe as a state something like shock, Aaron retrieved his phone and took photographic evidence of what he'd found, plus his surroundings to mark the exact spot, and then made his way home like a meatloaf hit single. Understandably shaken by what he'd found, because it proper would make your arse go, wouldn't it, finding a skull like that, it took him some time to compose himself, but he eventually did, and then he went to report his find to his local police station on Meadow Place Road in Corstaphine. Within 30 minutes of him reporting his find, he'd led a team of officers to the spot, and sure enough, it was confirmed that it was indeed a human skull. The area was carefully sealed off and a forensic tent erected over the immediate gravesite, as work began for a full excavation of the outlying area. It appeared that indeed, Marks in the surrounding soil indicated that this was a grave that had been carefully dug, perhaps in advance of the body being placed within. Well, obviously, of course, you're not going to dig a hole around a body, are you? As there were several tree roots and impacted earth that had been cleaved through to create it, which would have been a time-consuming effort. Animal activity had unearthed the bones, which were thought from appearance to have only been buried there between two weeks and six months before discovery, and as the gravesite was excavated, more bones were uncovered, until it was eventually revealed to be a partially clothed, full human skeleton. But a detached one, the upper and lower limbs were all separate from the torso, as was the head. It was to be confirmed at post-mortem of course, but from the appearance of the remains, and location of discovery, even at face value, Police were of the opinion that this was a murder victim that had been dismembered before being interred in a lonely grave. But who? When the remains had been collected and removed for post-mortem, they were estimated on examination to be that of a white female of medium build and short stature, just 5 feet 2 inches, with blonde or grey hair, and thought to have been aged anywhere between 32 and 60 years old. She was more likely considered to be 40 to 50 years old, but of course, the aforementioned age range couldn't be ruled out. The body was too far advanced in decomposition for any evidence of sexual assault or a precise cause of death to be ascertained, 
although a number of the bones did show marks and fractures that would tally with the having suffered severe blunt force trauma. There were several fractures to the ribs, a fracture to the woman's left shin, and discoloration of the skull that would be consistent with heavy blows. However, strangulation could not be ruled out either, as several tiny bones in the neck showed signs of damage also. The woman had been dismembered, with each of her legs removed at the top of the thigh, her arms at the top of the shoulders, and the head from the rest of the body. Then all pieces had been unceremoniously dumped into a shallow grave. Examination of the bones and remaining internal organs revealed the trace of several prescription drugs within a system, including the presence of morphine, and a full DNA profile was able to be raised from the woman's remains. The examining pathologist, Dr. Ian Wilkinson, also managed to extract a substance from the woman's stomach that was ultimately identified as being caraway seeds. But the most prominent find of the body was with the woman's teeth. She'd had fairly recent extensive dental work and treatments, including veneers and implants, that an odontologist who examined them estimated had been done over at least 15 sessions and costing in the region of some £15,000 worth of work by the same dentist. Now I'm unsure how they narrow down a particular dentist to some form of signature, but common sense says to me that everybody has just one or at least has any work needed done in the same location. I mean, why on earth would you want more than one dentist? I wouldn't want any, to be honest. hate the dentist. So putting the estimated description of the woman to someone with a record of such extensive work would narrow down the list of possible identities for the Corstaphine Hill remains. And there was another pointer discovered with these remains that led police to consider a particular location that they could begin searching for our identity. Four rings had been found with the woman's body, all very memorable ones, including two silver gemstone rings, one set with amber and the other a black obsidian in a daisy shape, and two distinctive gold ones, one a worked band in a daisy shape, and the other a very distinctive Irish cladder ring, which depicted two hands holding a heart. The heart of this particular ring was facing towards the body when the ring was worn, traditionally meaning that the wearer of it has a partner, and thus it's given to someone and not bought. All of the rings were old and were not thought to be of significant monetary value, more of a sentimental one, and the discovery of the cladder ring made the police consider the possibility that this had been an Irish woman, possibly a member of the Irish travelling community. But the focus began with all reported missing persons within the Edinburgh and outlying areas, because you work outwards from where the body was found, of course. But there was no one apparent who fit the criteria of the woman who'd been found, so police, in an attempt to identify her, issued the aforementioned description of who she'd been at a press conference held only a few days after the discovery. The officer lead in the inquiry, codenamed Operation Sandpiper, Detective Chief Inspector Keith Hardy of Police Scotland's major investigations team told the assembled media, We know the lady was white, middle-aged, slim and of a medium build and short in height. She's had significant cosmetic work on her teeth. We've also recovered a number of rings and two of these are distinctive. Both are golden appearance with one in the design of a daisy 
and the other is heart-shaped. The victim's body had been dismembered before it was buried on Corstaphine Hill. This isn't a crime scene we're talking about on Corstaphine Hill, this is a deposition site. We believe this may have been within a time frame of a matter of a few weeks, but possibly as much as six months. The soil is so compact up there, it would be a particularly difficult task. There are roots that have been cut through, fairly significant roots. It wouldn't be something you would do without a great deal of effort and difficulty over an extended period of time. Appealing for any witnesses to the burial, he added, Can you recall any time since the end of last year seeing a person or individuals on the hill with particularly large rucksacks, backpacks or carrying tools? If so, please get in touch with us. This is a murder investigation and our immediate focus is on identifying this woman and establishing the circumstances around her death. We need the public support to achieve this. This is someone's daughter, it may be someone's mother and I'm appealing today to the public to consider if there's a mother, a daughter or a friend you've not seen or heard from from the past few weeks or months and the person fits the issued description, I would urge you to contact us now. Within two weeks of the body being discovered, police had received more than 100 telephone calls, had taken more than 90 witness statements and distributed 10,000 leaflets to the public appealing for information. Whilst this did bring several suggestions as to the identity of the woman, they didn't get that crucial call. No one could definitively put the description together and say, yeah, that sounds like so-and-so. But police were, however, soon able to go one better than a verbal identikit. A few days into the investigation, the Craniofacial Research Department of Dundee University was contacted and asked to produce a possible likeness of how the woman would have looked in life, a similar technique to that that was used to produce the 3D image of King Richard III when his skull was found buried under a Leicestershire car park in 2012. Now I always think this is an absolutely remarkable process, especially today as it's so far technologically advanced from the days when this had to be painstakingly recreated using pegs inserted at strategic points of the skull and then covered with plaster of Paris or clay. You never know, there may be an episode involving a case with such a process coming up sometime in this series. Well, there's no may about it, actually, there will be. To do this for the Corstaphine Hill body, Computed tomography scans of the woman's skull were taken and using the latest in craniofacial recognition software combined with these scans, expert Professor Caroline Wilkinson set about recreating an idea of how the woman would have looked in life. To do this, once a 3D model of the skull is made, careful measurements are taken of unique anatomical features such as the teeth, the eye orbitals and the nose aperture to give information about how they should look before muscles are imported from a computerised database and shaped to fit around these said measurements. Soft tissues and skin tones, according to ages, sex and ethnicity of the skull, can then be added if these have been forensically established. But you don't just do this in your bloody dinner break, do you of course? It takes time. And although it gives a very defined shape and structure of a person's face, details such as eye colour, hair length or the style, how fat or thin they facially wear, 
or any scars that they may have had can't so much be ascertained, although several of these can of course be photoshopped on. By the 1st of July 2013, Professor Wilkinson and her team had a result for Police Scotland, and the image was to prove remarkable. Released to the media, combined with visuals of the jewellery that had been found with the woman, and again drawing attention to the extensive dental work that she'd had, Detective Chief Inspector Hardy appealed the following. It is now 25 days since this woman's body was discovered. In that time, we've worked with a range of experts and agencies to help us get more information on who she might be and how she came to be in Edinburgh. Today, thanks to the work of facial reconstruction experts at Dundee University, we've released an image of the woman's face. We're confident this is a very accurate representation of how the woman looked, and so I'm asking the public, does the image resemble someone you know, but perhaps haven't seen or heard from for some time? As I've said from the outset, this is someone's daughter, she could be someone's mother. Somebody knows who she is, and when we've established her identity, will have gone a long way to establishing who was responsible for her murder. This image was circulated to all police forces in the UK and Ireland, even Europol, and was publicised in national and local media, and within three days of the image being released, it had led to more than 23 different names being suggested as to the identity of the woman, although all of these proved incorrect. It did lead to 13 of these suggested people being traced and the other 10 ruled out, but it still didn't bring that crucial call. But the Operation Sandpiper team received a call the following day, Friday July the 5th, from an address in the Merino area of North Dublin suggesting a name for the woman that when the information suggested was looked at in conjunction with other calls that the incident room had received, led police to make a positive identification. A short time later, the identity of the Corstaphine Hill woman was confirmed, although no details of the identity were made public at that time. In a brief statement to the press late that afternoon, Detective Chief Inspector Hardy said, Identifying the victim was the first priority of this murder investigation, and I would like to thank the public and the media for their help in achieving that aim. While this is positive news, it also means that a loved one has been lost. We are progressing our inquiries into the circumstances of this woman's death and to finding those responsible for it. Now if you head over to the show's Instagram page following the episodes, or now whenever you wish to, have a look at the facial image that was created by Professor Wilkinson's team compared to a photograph of the victim when she was alive taken some three years before the discovery of her remains. I thought it was quite a remarkable likeness. I really did. I was incredibly struck by it. But there were two reasons police went publicly releasing the name of the woman immediately. One being that her next of kin needed to be informed first that she'd sadly been found and confirmed dead. The other is that police were now preparing to arrest a suspected killer. In fact, they'd already spoken to him the day before. The woman who'd been buried on Corstaphine Hill was identified by DNA as being 66-year-old mother of five, Philomena Dunleavy, who'd left a home in the Merino area of North Dublin in April 2013, several weeks before her remains were discovered. 
By all accounts, Philomena, or Phyllis as she was more commonly known, was the matriarch of quite a dysfunctional family that had already seen its fair share of tragedy, and by all accounts was also quite a poorly lady. She'd been estranged from her husband, 68-year-old retired painter and decorator James, for several years following the breakdown of their marriage, and reportedly had lived for a time with another man, although staunch Catholic faith stopped short of she and James divorcing. It was her husband who confirmed to police that Phyllis had been in extremely ill health over the previous couple of years, for aside from an existing heart condition for which she was medicated, Phyllis had also sometime before suffered a severe stroke, and as a result had spent considerable time in a Dublin hospital. Although she had to an extent physically recovered from this, to the point where she'd regained her speech, her mobility, her sensory perception, and was able to be discharged from hospital, considered well enough not to require care, it had had a lasting effect on Phyllis's character and her behaviour. She became somewhat shy and withdrawn in nature following this, but she also developed a habit of taking herself off wandering without notice for extended periods of time, thinking nothing of being incommunicado for days, sometimes weeks. She'd even taken herself off abroad on several occasions, so much so that her family had reportedly got used to her doing this and didn't overly panic when she did. Now I found that a very sad statement indeed really, and one that I would thought was quite telling about the function of the Dunleavy family, because as if you wouldn't panic or miss your mum if she just went off on one like some free spirit and you couldn't get hold of her for days or weeks especially after being so gravely ill as Phyllis had been. And especially when it transpired that Phyllis's eldest son, James, had rung his father in Dublin at the beginning of May, some two months before, to tell him that his mother was heading home from a visit to him in Edinburgh and would be back home in Dublin that evening. However, she didn't arrive, but was never reported missing, instead of family not being surprised when she didn't arrive back. What a tragic state of affairs. But by early July though, with no sign or sound of her, her family in Dublin were beginning to wonder where she was. And with the publishing of the facial reconstruction in the Irish Mirror newspaper, combined with details of the rings that had been found with the body, they suspected sadly that Phyllis had been found and had met with some harm. On the 5th of July, a member of her family in Dublin, it isn't specified exactly which member, had contacted police and provided a photograph of Phyllis for comparison purposes. But it transpired that that was the second member of her family to contact police and suggest her as possibly being the Corstaphine Hill woman. Her eldest son James, or Seamus as he was also known, had rung police two days before on the 3rd of July. He told police that after speaking to a relative, again an unnamed one, in Dublin, he was of the opinion that the mystery woman may be his mother, Philomena. He explained that his mother, who he described as a wandering soul, had arrived unannounced at his flat in the Balgreen Road area of Edinburgh on the 24th of April and had stayed for a visit, but had left his flat without warning on the 3rd of May, more than a month before her remains were unearthed. Interviewed at home by Detective Sergeant Stuart Wilson on the 4th of July, the evening after the phone call, Dunleavy again confirmed this story, 
saying his mother was a free spirit who came and went without warning and frequently left no details of where she would be heading and her mobile phone switched off so no one could contact her. He repeated his story that he hadn't considered it unusual that she'd turned up at his flat over from Dublin as this was in keeping with her character. Dunleavy also told the officer that his mother was a quote hard work and a difficult person who suffered from nerves and anxiety claiming her condition had deteriorated since my brother Terry was murdered in Dublin eight years ago. Dunleavy claimed that Phyllis had stayed with him for a few days until he awoke on the morning of May the 3rd and she was gone. Again, he told police, she wasn't supposed to go that morning, she was supposed to stay with me. When I eventually got up, she'd already departed. He then rung his father back in Dublin that day to tell him that his mother had left and would be back in Dublin later that evening, but she never arrived. As we've said, the family dynamic was so piss poor that not even really an eyelid was batted about this, and no missing persons report was raised with the Garda, even as the days stretched into weeks, until a Dunleavy family member saw the widely publicised computer-generated image of the body found on Corstaphine Hill and thought it might be the absent Phyllis. This had prompted James to contact police and then an independent member of his family back in Dublin did the same thing two days later. Sure enough, this had led to the body being identified as Phyllis. She hadn't made it back to Dublin at all. She had instead ended up dismembered in a shallow grave less than a mile from where her eldest son lived. It was now time for police to look close to home at the background of the last person confirmed to have seen Phyllis alive, her eldest son James. 39-year-old James Dunleavy, who as we've said was also known as Seamus, had been born and raised in Dublin, but had left Ireland in fear for his life many years before, after as a young man becoming heavily involved in the city's burgeoning drug scene. He'd established a lucrative existence as a well-connected drug dealer, but something had happened, perhaps he'd upset the wrong people, or someone hadn't been paid, or had been shortchanged, and these are the kind of people that you don't bugger about with like that, aren't they? It had led to Dunleavy fleeing to the UK mainland in the early 1990s, where he sought work as a labourer on building sites in the Birmingham and Coventry areas of the Midlands. An ill-fated relationship here produced a daughter in the early 1990s. We'll come back to this relationship somewhat later on in the tale. But once this had ceased, Dunleavy moved constantly throughout the UK, at points even heading back to his native Dublin for periods of time, as the coast must obviously have been clear for him by then. An exact timescale of his movements over this period are unknown but it is known that towards the end of the 2000s, he'd established himself in the Scottish capital city of Edinburgh, where he worked as a jackhammer operator on the problematic and controversial Edinburgh City tramline construction. Despite his drug dealing past, Dunleavy had only ever amassed a string of relatively minor criminal convictions beforehand, but his younger brother Terry, however, was a different story. He'd followed in his older brother's footsteps and by the mid-2000s, aside from being a well-established drug dealer, had been linked to a string of armed robberies across Dublin and at least one shotgun murder, 
one of the 19 deaths associated with the Dublin drug scene over a four-year period. However, at some point money had been taken from the wrong person, and on the 14th of April 2005, in the North Dublin inner city area of Ballybo, Terry Dunleavy was ambushed as he headed into his girlfriend's apartment in the Croke Villas flats. Although he managed to flee to a nearby stairwell, he was pursued on foot and shot a number of times at close range. Out of five shots that were heard discharged, Terry Dunleavy was found to have been hit four times in the head. The gunman was seen speeding away on a moped, which was shortly afterwards found burned out on St Bridget's Road in Dublin's Drumcondra area. Terry was immediately rushed to the Mater Hospital following the shooting, but was pronounced dead on arrival. Although to date a number of people have been arrested in connection with the murder, a code of silence exists and no one has to date been charged with or convicted over his death. Now Terry's death rocked the Dunleavy family with several neighbours of theirs later explaining that it was the primary reason that led to the breakdown of James and Phyllis's marriage, grief. Each year on the anniversary of his death, the family would gather at a traditional wake that was held for him and deal with in their own way the loss of their son and brother. Now the death of someone so close has to affect a person, perhaps it affected Phyllis and in some way led to her health declining, maybe it even contributed to her stroke. It will undoubtedly have affected James Sr., Terry's two sisters, Kim and Paula, and youngest brother Austin, and it reportedly indeed affected James. He became a changed character following the death of his brother, a darker one, as we'll find out a bit later on in the tale. He also experimented with a number of different faiths and teachings following his brother's death. Having been brought up a staunch Catholic, he abandoned this faith and experimented with Buddhism and several New Age beliefs until he spur of the moment, although quite committedly, converted to Islam after expressing an interest in it. But converted to Islam or not, did that darkness possibly extend to him causing unimaginable harm to his own mother? There were a number of reasons that police thought this possible, apart from the circumstance that she was found buried and dismembered only a few minutes walk away and less than a mile from her son's flat. Firstly, inquiries as to any possible sightings of Phyllis over the time she was known to have been in Edinburgh revealed an account from a civilian police administrator, Carol Ross, who worked at Edinburgh's Portobello police station. On the 27th of April of that year, a woman had come into the station and spoken to Carol, who remembered her distinctly for what she later described as her lovely teeth and strong Irish accent. The woman had asked where she could get a cheap room to stay in the city, as she'd previously been staying with her son, but he had had what she described as an episode, and she chose to walk away from him when he did so. After being directed by Carol to several nearby guest houses, the woman left. Now it's unsure as to whether Phyllis, for this was later confirmed to have been her, did stay in one of these, but the following day, on the 28th of April, PC Grant Robertson and a colleague were on mobile patrol when they were alerted by a member of the public to a woman in apparent distress and confusion on the city's western approach road sat on an embankment close to where the road heads towards Murrayfield Rugby Stadium. The distressed woman, 
again this was later positively identified as being Phyllis, seemed reluctant to engage with the officers, but they eventually managed to extract enough information from her that he and his colleague were able to take her back to an address in the city, her son's flat at 138 Balgreen Road, about a mile away. Back to a place of safety, or to her doom. Already the prime suspect, based on these accounts, on the morning of Monday the 8th of July 2013, James Dunleavy was arrested as he left his flat in Balgreen Road. He was taken to Corstorphine Hill Police Station, where after being allowed to speak to his appointed solicitor in private, Dunleavy was then questioned about his mother's disappearance. In an hour-long interview, conducted by Detective Constable Brian Manchester, Dunleavy remained emotionless when he was told that the body on Corstorphine Hill had been identified as his mother and maintained a no-comment stance to most of the questions put to him. He would not respond with anything but this when asked if he'd caused any harm to his mother, why, when Dunleavy had telephoned police five days earlier, he'd spoken about his mother in the past tense when it had not been confirmed that she was dead, and when it was asked of him if he'd dismembered and buried his mother a short distance away in a shallow grave on Corstorphine Hill. Whilst he was taken into custody, a forensic team set about his Balgreen Road flat and performed a thorough examination of it, a search which also extended to the outside and Sorton Park Green at the rear. Discovered in Sorton Park, only a short distance from the rear of the flat, was a shovel with a broken handle, whilst inside, in the flat's spare bedroom, which was missing the bed and mattress, these having been very recently removed, due to the still visible indentations on the carpet. A search using adapted lighting and the chemical luminol found two blood spots within that when tested matched the DNA profile of Phyllis Dunleavy. They also discovered a jar of caraway seeds, similar to those that had been discovered in his stomach, 870 euros worth of banknotes, several items of Phyllis's clothing, and a national identity card all items that she would have surely taken back with her had she left the flat of her own accord. There was, however, no sign in the flat of the large suitcase that she'd been caught on CCTV wheeling behind her upon her arrival at the Cairn Ryan Port Ferry Terminal on the 24th of April. On Tuesday the 9th of July, James Seamus Dunleavy appeared at Edinburgh Sheriff's Court we're following a brief appearance in private before Sheriff Richard Clark was charged with the murder of his mother, Phyllis Dunleavy, alleging that he inflicted blunt force trauma by means unknown, compressed his mother's throat and cut off her head, arms and legs. He was also charged with attempting to pervert the course of justice by pretending his mother was unwell and had returned to Ireland and of the subsequent unlawful disposal of her body. No plea or declaration was made on his behalf and the case was continued for further inquiry with Dunleavy being remanded in custody awaiting trial. Neighbours of the Dunleavy family back in Dublin, meanwhile, spoke of their shock at learning about the murder. One local, who didn't wish to be named, said, I knew Phyllis for years. She was a very pleasant and innocent woman. There wasn't a bit of harm in her so I can't understand why anyone would want to harm her. She travelled over to Eastern Europe to get dental work done 
and then to Scotland to visit her son. It is such terrible, sad news. Another neighbour, local councillor Finian McGrath, said the community was devastated by the death. He told the Irish Mirror newspaper, They live just down the road from me. The whole of Marino is just dismayed and shocked by this. It's the second tragedy to hit that family. Our sympathies go out to Mr Dunleavy and the rest of them. The whole community is devastated. I didn't know her well, but from what I did know, she was a kind and compassionate woman. And perhaps some greater power thinking that the family had not suffered enough. In the months leading up to James Dunleavy's trial, the Dunleavy family were to suffer yet more. Just a month after the remains of Phyllis Dunleavy were found, the youngest Dunleavy daughter, Paula, sadly died due to complications arising from a C-section. Officially, anyway. The shattered husband, Kingsley Okigao, claimed that Paula had gone to her grave, traumatised, unable to comprehend the horror of her mum's grisly end. He told the Irish Journal newspaper, Before she died, Paula heard her mother's body had been found and her brother had been charged. She was shaking when she heard. She wanted to know what happened, but then she herself died, not having the opportunity to find out. Paula was buried before her mother in the end. There are no words to that really, are there? And it wasn't the last member of the Dunleavy family to be affected by the actions of James Dunleavy a family that tragedy really seemed to shadow. They still had the full horror of a trial to come. And we shall hear more about that in the second part of the Series 5 opener, which, as I've said, I've opted to release at the same time as this one, because it's all done and ready to go. It was just running hellaciously long, longer than a series of Love Island, and was easier to work through doing it like this. So it is split down, but you do get to hear both parts together or at your own leisure whenever you want. So as I've done this, I won't do the usual wrap up here because there's still quite a bit of the tale to go. And if you head over to part two of The Body on Corstaphine Hill, which is out right now, then you can get to hear it or in your own time. It's not Nazi Germany or anything. And if you aren't jumping straight over to it now, then I hope that you can very, very soon. Take care, guys. Thank you very much for joining me. It's good to be back, as I say, and I shall speak to you again very shortly. Goodbye for now. <laughs>